Hi, good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois. Sitting to my left, your right, is Jeremy Janis, one of the senior associates in our workers' compensation defense practice here. If you're here today on Eclipse Day, missing the eclipse, uh, as we are, uh, is to learn about uh, medical benefits and non-acute pain management in New York. Uh, this is our overall webinar series. Every month we tackle a different issue or topic in New York workers' compensation. It's always the third Monday of the month. All of these are recorded and saved and closed captioned and available for later viewing on our firm website. Uh, we also have handbooks, articles, newsletters, all sorts of ways to uh, learn about workers' compensation. Please reach out to us if you do not have a copy of our handbook. And I hope today everyone has a copy of the uh, handout that we uh, provided as well as a copy of the NRA hospice decision finding that medical treatment guidelines apply to out-of-state uh, medical uh, claimants. Um, this is a live webinar. Again, it's occurring during the eclipse. I hope there's no interference from the sun in our uh, presentation today. Uh, but please feel free to ask questions and we will attempt to answer them all live. Um, today, uh, we're going to be talking about benefits. In April, May, and June, we did defenses. Now we're uh, finishing up uh, benefits. Last month, we did temporary disability benefits. Now we're on to medical benefits. And after this, we're going to move on to advanced concepts, including discussions of exposure. Um, today, we're going to talk about medical benefits, how we control them, how we challenge them, when we can stop medical benefits. And we're going to talk about addiction and opiate abuse and how we can curtail or control that. Again, we hope you ask our questions. Please feel free to type them in as we go along. There's four benefits in New York workers' compensation. Uh, medical benefits, which we're going to talk about today. The second one is temporary disability benefits. That's wage compensation. We covered that last month. And then, of course, there are permanency. Those are a scheduled loss of use or a loss of wage earning capacity awards. Uh, we covered those. Uh, we will cover those in our November webinar. Of course, there's death benefits. Those are more uh, clear and easy. Uh, Medical treatment guidelines are uh, treatment pathways for the neck, mid, uh, low back, which would be thoracic and lumbar spines, shoulder, knee, carpal tunnel syndrome, and non-acute pain. These are basically the injuries, types, and body parts which have been identified as the most common source of medical litigation. We recommend that to get a great overview of the medical treatment guidelines in New York, that you take the training that's available on the board's website. Uh, all the attorneys in my firm and most of the staff, I believe, at this point has taken all of that medical treatment guidelines training. They have their diplomas. I recommend it highly. It's a really good way to get up to date, up to speed with the medical treatment guidelines and how they work. Um, so that's uh, really, we're not going to go too much today into the actual guidelines themselves or pick them apart. We think that there's great uh, training available on the board's website as well as in the guidelines themselves, and so it would be sort of a waste of your time. What we want to do today is give you some more practical advice. Now, under the workers' compensation law, we have to provide medical treatment until the claimant reaches maximum medical improvement, which Jeremy and I both know as practicing attorneys is pretty rare for the treating physician to find that the claimant has actually reached maximum medical improvement on their own. Uh, often we'll have to litigate that issue. Yeah, and oftentimes when it's listed for permanency, I'll walk in, be told that the claimant is uh, expecting to schedule another surgery. Right, and that's their tactic to delay a finding of maximum medical improvement and that the case is ready for a discussion or decision on permanent residual disability, which is something we're wanting to drive the case towards. At that point, we try to point the judge and point our adversary in the direction of the board's own guidelines, which say maximum medical improvement can be found and should be found even where the claimant is contemplating or considering a potential surgery. 
and we've seen that derail uh, the resolution of a case so many times where, you know, we really want to push the case forward to permanency so we can get to that settlement, get to that section 32, and our adversary comes in and goes, oh no, uh, the claimant uh, has decided I think that he may want a surgery, she may want a surgery. Nope, uh, there's great guidance in the board bulletins itself as well as in the case law that says mere contemplation of a surgery is not enough to delay that finding. So keep that one in your back pocket and use it to sort of push treatment along. Um, more typically, we're defending variances. Let's talk a little bit about what a variance is and what, and what we have to do to defend it. So a variance is required when treatment uh, varies from the guidelines. Mm -hmm. So the uh, example of when a claimant is requesting physical therapy passing the amount that's... That's allowed under the uh, normal treatment yeah. pathway. Sure. So, uh, be two different pathways. The first one is when you're requesting either a peer review or an IME, um, mm -hmm. and that would you would need to notify the board within five days that you're doing so. Um, if you're not going to do that, you would need to notify them within 15 days. Um, the IME or the peer review report would need to be submitted within 30 days. Which is a challenge, and again, the burden's on us. Where the claimant's treating physician has issued a variance which is not defective on its face, and that means it comports with all the requirements of that board form, it's then up to us to combat it with conflicting medical opinion. And again, it puts us under a short timeline. Yeah, it's often very tough to get it as quickly as possible. Um, in my experience with judges, they often prefer to have a, a IME report from a doctor that's actually physically examined the claimant as they find that they know a little bit more about the claimant. Sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They'll give more weight to that IME report than just a peer review that's never seen the claimant, never performed a physical examination. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing that we see uh, trying to get around the guideline limitations on excess medical treatment is doctors who issue a C4 authorization. And let's talk about what that is. So an authorization that under the guidelines, there's a number of uh, things that are pre-authorized, but there's also a bunch of surgeries that are not. And um, for that, you would need to get... If you wanted to deny it, you would need to file both a C4 point, uh, C8.1 A and a C4 auth D within, uh, and the C4 auth D must be filed within five days of denial. Right, which is a challenge. And again, the C-8.1 A is denying that we're going to provide or pay for any further or future medical treatment. Again, just like the uh, variance request, there it may be defective on its face, and and sometimes when we want to. A uh, risk professional will contact us and say, hey, should I deny this one? Can I deny this one of the guidelines? We'll say, let's back up. Let's, let's take a look at it on its face. Does it make the prima facie case that the law judge reviewing this request, either for a variance or for an authorization, should grant it? Has the doctor shown that there has been uh, medical improvement? Have we shown that, uh, that the prior treatment has led up to this? Have they tried alternative treatments? Have they filed everything under the guidelines? And often, they're not even citing the guidelines that they're seeking variance from and or authorization for. So there may be ground, just on its very face, to grant to deny it that is defective, uh, particularly where it's a body part that's not yet established or the case is controverted. All right, so that's a little bit about C4 authorizations. Let's move on to what's really new and what I think is really interesting and very useful for our clients, out-of-state treatment. Now, in this firm with offices in New York and New Jersey and a full New Jersey practice and a New York practice, we see a lot of claimants who either reside in New Jersey uh, but were employed in New York and so are therefore getting medical treatment here in New Jersey or they're New York claimants and New York residents who are crossing the river, so to speak, crossing the Hudson and getting medical care in New Jersey. And uh, they do that because in the past the board has held 
that out-of-state medical treatment is not covered by the guidelines, which means uh, they can go and get unlimited chiropractic, unlimited physical therapy, unlimited uh, pain management care that really departs from what the guidelines are. And when we raise an objection, we start disputing those bills as unnecessary or maybe not related, they come into court and they go, well, the board says uh, they has no power to regulate out-of-state treatment and that out-of-state medical treatment providers do not have to comply with the medical treatment guidelines. Well, as of May 24, 2017, in the case which I've included in our handout materials today, Enray Hospice, the board has signaled a total shift, right? I mean, complete 180, and it's now saying, yes, we do think that out-of-state medical treatment should follow the medical treatment guidelines. Now, they are excusing out-of-state providers from uh, submitting New York Workers' Compensation board forms, so they don't have to submit MG2s and C4 auths or any of the C-4 uh, family of workers' compensation forms that we see all the time, but they are saying that the doctors are going to be held to the same New York standard that is in the medical treatment guidelines, and that if they're really departing from that evidence-based care, uh, there should be some good reason for it, and it should be well-documented. That decision, I think, is very useful and very powerful. We're recommending to all our clients that they keep it by their side. Yeah, and practically that means that you should be filing C8.1s in uh, conjunction with the guidelines. Right, and in the past, I know that some of our risk professionals have felt powerless. You know, they felt like, well, the claimant crossed the river, they're getting treatment in New Jersey or in Connecticut or in Pennsylvania, where they live. And they felt like there's nothing I can do about it. Well, now there is. And we are suggesting you should be filing that's those C-8.1s. You should be disputing care and make them come to court and show why that medical treatment comports with the guidelines. You can make that argument now. Keep that case by its side. Now, a little word of caution is that case is a board panel decision. Right? It's not civil case law from the appellate division. So it's not, it hasn't gone up yet to the appellate division. We're going to follow that. And as soon as we get an appellate level decision case that says medical treatment guidelines applies out of state, we'll certainly be advising you about that. All right, let's talk about the other big topic for today, which is uh, non-acute pain management, which is a huge national issue now. Yeah, and recently I know both uh, President Trump and uh, our Governor Chris Christie have addressed uh, the topic of opioids, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, we all know just from watching the news every day that uh, addiction, and specifically heroin and opioid addiction, it's is crazy. a big topic right yeah. now. Yeah, and this stuff is now, you know, it's come out of the pill mills, and now this is national news, and everybody's aware of it. And the good news is now actually some of the treating physicians and some of the prior pill pushers are realizing that everyone's focusing on this now. We're all looking at. But it's also going to be something that we need to continually push back on. Mm -hmm. um, so in regards to the non-acute pain guidelines, um, the board looks at two different types of claimants. Uh, one who have not used opioids yet, and these were opioid-naive patients. And, and the second category is uh, claimants that have been on opioids for a while. Right. So we're going to talk about both groups, the naive opiate users, the new ones, and how we deal with that. And we're also going to talk about the patients who've been on opioids for a long time and how we can use these rules to help you kind of close those old dog cases you have with that long-term narcotic mm -hmm. dependence. Okay, so an opioid-naive patient is someone who's been using other uh, modalities of uh, improvement, including physical therapy, other types of drugs, um, chiropractic treatment, mm -hmm. um, and have failed. Nothing's worked to date. So uh, those claimants would get enrolled in a trial that would last 30 or 60 days, during which the, the doctor is supposed to monitor the claimant to see what improvement they have. Um, a successful therapeutic opioid trial would mean improved function, including a return to work or an increase in activities daily living, 
which is pretty much what the claimant would do every day, mm -hmm. whether it mean driving a car, working around the house, cooking, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, at least a 30% reduction in pain measured by a validated pain scale, which we often find that doctors don't. Right, or every sure. single medical note says eight out of 10 pain consistently from the first day they saw the pain manager until 15 years later, there's still eight out of 10 pain, no improvement in pain. Yeah, um, they would monitor side effects to see if any were adverse as well, and they would also look for some kind of addictive behavior. Right, so those patients or those claimants who we see who are showing up at the ER every other weekend in extreme pain and needing uh, treatment for breakthrough pain, or those claimants who are going through their meds much faster than they should have given the size of the dispensation. So, so you know, certainly we see that in a lot of our cases. And maybe uh, also look out for uh, maybe doctor shopping as well, where they try to get drugs from one and they can't, and then they go to another. Right, and interestingly, um, many states are participating in a formulary uh, information sharing, sharing services. So for example, New York and New Jersey are. You can't simply cross the river, go from one Rite Aid to a CVS across the river and get the same prescription filled. Uh, unfortunately, Pennsylvania does not participate in that. So even though, uh, so a New Jersey claimant can cross the river and go into Pennsylvania, there's no way of tracking that or they're not um, coordinating information. And Pennsylvania is not coordinating with New York. So, you know, you do still have that problem where they can doctor shop and get multiple prescriptions filled in multiple locations for the same patient. All right. And in regards to existing opiate users, the goal is to not to uh, abruptly end treatment for that. Mm -hmm. So it's to gradually wean them off. Right, and the board's even given us some weaning uh, schedule ideas, and they're saying about 10% per week, week over week, is their recommended weaning schedule. Um, the board is uh, asking us to put, or asking physicians to put them on the lowest necessary possible dose. Yeah, the concern is that uh, the, the uh, an opioid is, is supposed to be used for end-stage cancer, and these That's doctors are using it to mask a right. lot of uh, problems. And symptomology yeah. rather than, than the actual condition. So um, the board is uh, saying there should be never more than two pain medications at the same time. The board is uh, prohibiting or uh, not recommending the use of injectables, you know, the under-the-tongue injections, the subbuccals. Um, and then, of course, the board is uh, suggesting that a second opinion from another pain management is recommended, but do claimants ever go out and do that on their own? I, mean, I, I've, I've, never I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Um, they're also supposed to get mandatory urine testing. Um, it's supposed to be every 28 days, but as we know, that never usually happens. <laughs> right, and they're not supplying us with the results of the uniform drug, or the urine drug testing, sorry. Um, but they should be noting it in their notes. So as you're looking through the notes as a risk professional or as the defense attorney, we should be taking note of whether the physician is telling us there's been a urine toxicology or drug assay screening done of the urine on a regular basis. Uh, the board has specifically said that they are not to share the results uh, with the employer, with the carrier, with the risk professional, with the attorneys, and that's really to protect claimants who may be taking other illicit street drugs or other things that would maybe have them be separated or fired from their employment. It's unbelievable that the, the board would have a, a rule like that, that we would want somebody who's engaged in, you know, uh, literally illegal conduct, but that's the board's rule. Um, and so very carefully going through the medicals to see that those urine drug testings are actually done. Goal of this, of course, would be get, get some weaning in place for those long-term opiate users. So back in uh, late October of 2016, the board uh, issued a bulletin on weaning. Uh, they pretty much created a guideline process for uh, carriers to try to wean the claimant off of opioids. 
as part of the process, it would begin by you guys, or the carriers, um, obtaining an IME, commenting on a, weaning, a possible weaning program. You would then file an RFA with the board, which would end up in a hearing uh, before the law judge regarding opioid use. Um, the claimant would then get his own report, and the judge would issue a decision as to whether or not the claimant needs to be weaned off the drugs. Um, if he did issue a program, it would then be uh, up to both us and the carrier to properly um, monitor the claimant to make sure they're complying with the uh, weaning program. Essentially to enforce it. Because even if we can get the law judge to agree that a weaning program is appropriate, it's going to be up to us to make sure that it's actually complied with. And, and we know claimants who've been on long-term opiates and are not receptive to this and who are being ordered to go through a weaning are not going to be happy with this. I can also tell you that culturally there is an aversion on the behalf of the board to separate long-term opiate dependence from their medications and really I've actually heard them, I've actually heard law judges say things like, Greg, I don't want to be the person that cuts this person off. Yeah, I know he's on a huge dose of oxycodone and it's really immense at this point, but Greg, I don't want to be the person that cuts this guy off because I don't want him to go crazy and jump off a bridge or go, you know, shoot up a, a pharmacy or something. I mean, that's the level of concern that people are realizing with this. And let me address the other part of it. A weaning schedule is very useful and may be very helpful in uh, obtaining a full and final settlement. Our goal is to resolve matters by way of a Section 32 lump sum dismissal where possible. Sometimes we can't do it because the claimant is on Social Security disability or they're Medicare entitled and they have this huge opioid dependency that and we can't close out medical because that set-aside allocation would be so massive. So uh, getting a weaning schedule in place and reducing those meds, very useful towards getting that set aside. And we've also had success with reaching out to our adversaries and being like, listen, your client wants to do a Section 32 resolve this case. You want to do this and get, a, get this person out of your life. We want to do a Section 32. Our problem is the doctor keeps prescribing these drugs. Can you have your client, the patient, the claimant, go to their treating physician and say, hi, I want a weaning schedule, or hi, can you stop prescribing me this so that I can go settle my workers' comp case? Um, we think that's valid, that's useful, then that information can then be used by your set-aside vendor to go secure a lower set-aside, which maybe make the whole settlement possible. And I've had that happen in one of my cases where they, we got a letter from the treating physician, it was sent to the vendor, and we were able to get a lower set-aside. Exactly. All right, last topic before we answer your questions, and this topic is M&Ts. Um, I always tell clients, be very careful about M&Ts. Under the New York Workers' Compensation Law, uh, employers are required to reimburse the claimants for the cost of travel to and from medical appointments. Um, they're also required to reimburse things like tolls and parking if that's appropriate. I warn you that this does not mean that everybody needs to be taking a limousine to every appointment uh, and to use some good judgment here. Uh, the M&T is uh, not limited to mileage, and there are circumstances where the claimant would need a medical transportation service, particularly where they can't transport themselves or they're too disabled to ride uh, public transit or take a subway or a bus, and that's all fine, and we understand that. But just be considerate of the uh, claimants who are all of a sudden turning in uh, $100 costs for taking limo rides in their cousin's taxi back and forth to the chiropractor every time they go there. Audit those M&Ts. Uh, they're not appropriate. Um, mileage is, of course, always appropriate. But take a look at those MNTs. They really are for things like prosthesis, uh, for canes, for disposable medical goods, for medications, and for mileage. All right, that's all of our prepared remarks. Let's go over here to questions. If you haven't asked your question yet, now is the time to type it in, and we'll try to answer as many of these as we possibly can before we run out of time. So, 
Uh, let's go over to this screen over here, open up to questions, and let me see if I have any. Okay, so far either we did amazing or everybody's out watching the eclipse. Could be either. <laughs> <laughs> it could be both, uh, you know, maybe the eclipse. Uh, but right now I'm not seeing any questions coming through. So please feel confident or comfortable that you can always email us with your questions and we'll answer them offline as best we can. Of course, you can always call us as well. Our contact information is in the uh, handout materials. Next month we'll be talking. Oh, 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 I got a question. I got a question. Let me go back. Let me go back. I'm very excited. Uh, let me get the cursor back over here into the screen. Um, okay, Tracy asks, what is the appropriate mileage rate uh, in New York? Well, it's the IRS rate, which is 54.5 cents per mile, I believe, right now. Thank you for that question. Pat asks a question. Um, is it appropriate at this point to file C-8.1Bs for out-of-state treatment? Yes, it is. Um, so we did, we did briefly address that, yes. Uh, where you think the treatment is exceeding the guidelines, where the treatment is just absolutely unnecessary, uh, or where you feel like you could make a guidelines fight. Yeah, I would say address it the same way you would address an in-state treatment. Right. Just the way we would address non-medical treatment guideline treatment, which is filing a CA1A or B, particularly if that treatment out-of-state conflicts with an IME or an independent medical exam. Um, Tracy asked the question, how far are they allowed to travel? Um, well, Tracy, the answer is reasonable. Uh, Reasonableness uh, is part of our standard for reviewing what's correct M&T. I've had cases where the claimant resided in New York, had a relatively rare condition, and was traveling down to Philadelphia for medical treatment. We argued that that was unnecessary, that there's plenty of trained physicians in New York who could have treated that specific, although relatively rare, re relatively uh, small population of this type, injury type or condition type, that that treatment out of state was really not necessary. And in New York, it's going to be very rare that you're going to have to transport people outside the state or really great distances to find quality medical care or uh, specialists within their uh, specialization. Okay. Um, okay, so I've got another great question here from Kim. She says, Greg, is it helpful to have the uh, drug utilization review done prior to our defense IME to aid the IME examiner's remarks. Yes, I strongly, I love this. Okay, so uh, let's say we have a long-term, one of your old dog cases, a claim that's been on opiates forever, and it's an old case and you want to resolve it, and you schedule an IME for the, for the purposes of maybe addressing a weaning. In the meantime, you have a drug utilization review done uh, beforehand or a drug medical evaluation done to determine can this person be weaned, and then you have your IME doctor comment and agree with and sort of ratify that weaning schedule that the drug utilization expert has come up with. Yeah, I love that stuff. That now it looks like we've got two doctors who are in agreement, and I can use the IME doctor's testimony as a way to shoehorn in uh, the drug review doctor's testimony. So I love all that stuff. Yeah, I absolutely think that's a great way to use those. Um, Tracy asked a question, what if they have a surgery and live at a state now, but their surgeon is in New York. Is it reasonable to travel back to New York to see the surgeon, and how often? Okay, great exam great question. First of all, I'm going to start at the very basics. Under the medical treatment guidelines, repeat surgery is absolutely forbidden and requires a variance every single time, right? If they're coming back to the surgeon for a checkup, 
how many checkups is that really going to be? I mean, is it really going to be more than one or two? Uh, you know, take a look at the reasonableness of that. If the person's moved out of state and the surgery was five years ago and they're trying to travel back to New York every year for, or twice a year to have their surgeon look at them, it's patently ridiculous and I would be challenging that as well. I would be disputing and denying that care as unnecessary. Uh, I would also want to know a little bit about the injury type. How rare is it? Right? Can they find a qualified physician in wherever they live now that could take a look at them? Uh, but you don't have to agree to every single uh, mileage or transportation request. Uh, and the standard, you asked me how often do I have to pay for them to come back, well the standard is really reasonableness. That's the standard. Is it reasonable or not? And so that's what you should be looking towards. Okay, well that's questions. I don't think there's any other questions I haven't addressed popping in here, but if you have any others, please feel free to email us, call us. Uh, we love getting your questions. All right, next month we'll be talking about defending occupational claims in New York. That would include repetitive orthopedics. That's going to include respiratory claims, and we're going to talk about cardiac claims and cardiac defenses, uh, heart attacks, angina, all those types of things that happen in the workplace. I hope to see everybody next month. Have a great eclipse day, everybody. Don't look at the sun.